welcome to episode 153 of Cinematary. I'm your host, Zach Dennis, and I'm here with... Andrew Swafford. Jesse Swafford? <laughs> We're married, by the way. Lydia <laughs> Lydia Creech? Oh my god. No, no, it's good. Are we starting over? No. Okay, Nathan Smith. In today's episode, we'll be talking about movies we saw this week in part one. And in part two, we will be continuing our Young Critics Watch Old Movie series with 1953's Ugetsu. Um, but we have a lot of movies to talk about in this first part, so let's go ahead and get started. Um, Andrew and Jesse, I know that you have two movies you want to discuss. Yes, uh, in the epic conclusion of the conversation that was opened last week by Lydia, uh, Jesse and I both watched Babe and Babe 2, Pig in the City. Um, actually, just Babe colon Pig in the City. There's no yeah. number in that title. Uh, both of which have something to do with George Miller, uh, director of Mad Max Fury Road. He wrote the first one. He directed the second one. Um, Lydia did a pretty good summation of the first in the last episode, so I won't spend too much time on it, though I'm sure there will be a couple of references here and there. Um, Babe 2 picks up directly where Babe 1 left off. So that ends with him like winning the contest of being the best sheepdog in the country, even though he is not a dog. Babe, Pig in the City, opens with the end of that uh, award ceremony and him going home to the farm and immediately things start to get very macabre, very violent. There's a, a scene of his farmer friend, uh, played by James Cromwell, horrifically falling down a well, or not falling down a well, but having something... I thought for sure they were going to kill him. Yeah, I was like... <laughs> it, it felt like a, the opening of There Will Be Blood or something, right? And I think that the movie just kind of tumbles down from there. Um, Babe ends up, as the title suggests, he has to go to the city in order to be in some sort of bigger competition or make an appearance somewhere to make... It's a make... county fair. It's a county fair? Yeah. Is it? He's okay. just making an appearance at a county fair. Yeah, because he's like a celebrity now, yeah. basically. A speaking um, fee. And yeah. the farm is currently uh, in debt. They might have to sell the farm if Babe doesn't go and do the speaking fee and bring back a bunch of money. Everything immediately goes very wrong uh, because of things that get held up in the airport and they don't actually make it to the, uh, to the fair. And Babe gets chased around by a lot of angry dogs and his stuff is stolen by monkeys that are living in a hotel that they're staying in. He gets separated from his human. It, at times, as Lydia said in her letterbox review, is just very, very horrific. Um, and, and the stakes are very high. And, you know, this movie has in recent times actually been paired by the director Noah Baumbach with uh, Stanley Kubrick's Eyes Wide Shut. Baumbach did a double feature of Eyes Wide Shut and Babe Pig in the City. And there are some, oh, you know, nocturnal sequences of Babe just wandering around being lost that very much remind me of that, as well as a scene in a you know, a, a, an aristocratic ballroom at the very end of Pig in the City that reminds me of Club Fidelio in Eyes Wide Shut. The, there's like a, a match uh, scene, basically. Um, <laughs> but the movie is so strange. I don't know if I if I really can say I like it. Um, it just Jesse, leaves, it leaves me with a really weird feeling. And, and I guess I'll try to explain what that is or why that is the first one i just thought was really just cute um my favorite thing about the first one is really just seeing babe and hoget interact 
Um, and Babe seems to be everybody's good luck charm. Like, he builds yes. a community in this sort of broken community on this farm. Everything, he's constantly helping Hoget kind of make this farm just a little bit better. He's his good luck charm. The duck calls him his lucky pig. Yeah. Right? And the second one, it seems just to be the very opposite. Like, he's constantly yeah. bringing major, major issues to everything and everyone he interacts with. Like, he nearly <laughs> kills Hoget, whereas he was like Hoget's good luck charm in the first movie. Um, he just has a conversation with a dog and then the, like that ruins their chances of getting to go to this county farm because the yeah, dog just... I forgot about that. The dog just in the airport for fun starts barking at him. It's a drug dog. Yeah. Um, he ruins this woman's whole livelihood of owning this hotel. I mean, her neighbors were oh, shitty God. to begin with. But, but then what happens to that hotel at the end of the movie is just like this crazy deus ex machina out of nowhere where they just the narrator just tells us the hotel gets changed into a nightclub and yeah. everyone's problems are solved. I mean, <laughs> but like up until that yeah. narration... No one's problems are solved. Yeah, it, I mean, it solves itself in the end, but it, it, he just, like, really messes up a lot of people's lives real real quick. Um, mm-hmm. And then just paired with the fact that it's not even the same voice actress from the first movie. Yeah. It's just a lot of little layers of, why does this movie make me feel so uneasy? The talking yeah. chimps with the scratching her belly and being like, that little pinky whitey thingy. I don't know, there's just it something has a, about it. That it has an me- aesthetic to it that reminds me almost of, like, the first a series of unfortunate events yeah. movie or even like that cat in the hat live action yeah. adaptation they made where it's just like all kind of gaudy and mm-hmm. gross and, um, and then weirdly like this city that isn't but oh, is yeah. America but isn't America because there's like French and Italian music playing kind of looks like it's set in Venice there with how there's water all over the place but then there's like a, a Statue of Liberty and like a Golden Gate Bridge and like Hollywood Japanese in the background. billboards it is just really there's something just kind of weird about it. Cityville. Almost like a layer of slime on this movie that I really The really city's like. actually just called Metropolis. Yes. Like, that's the name of the that city. makes perfect so. sense. You guys are describing what sounds like the most amazing <laughs> Like, I don't know how it's, you dislike it. This sounds amazing. horrifying, Nathan. <laughs> there's a world in which I decide I love it, but I'm not in that world just yet. I'm, I'm just too on edge from this movie right now. Um... I said in my letterbox review that, you know, this is this is the weirdest connection to make from Babe Pig in the City, but it almost reminded me of Louis Boonwell's movie Viridiana, uh, which I don't know how many Viridiana fans we have in the audience, but basically that is a, a movie about uh, this woman taking over a, a large estate from an aristocrat and deciding she's going to uh, be uh, good-hearted in a way that the aristocrat was not and open her home to all the homeless people who are kind of wandering around in the village. And everything just becomes very chaotic and goes to utter shit. Like, her dreams of, like, offering, you know, a structure and support and shelter to these people and, like, really helping them heal just is broken because these are people who don't know how to exist in like a structured environment and it's just madness <laughs> and the same thing happens in babe pig in the city when he uh, is in this animal hotel and pulls in all these stray dogs and cats and stuff yes. from the street and it just goes nuts there he's trying to be a good person like he was in the first movie but it just doesn't work in this context and it's very unsettling yeah. um Lydia, what what other thoughts did you have aside from the fact that it's just scary? It wasn't necessarily just scary either. I think what horrified me the most was just 
how much humiliation was heaped upon the farmer's wife. And I know she's just like a very straight, self-possessed character. So like that's supposed to be funny. Like she doesn't see what's happening to her as embarrassing. She's just dealing with it. And I'm like, no, this is humiliating. So many bad things are happening to you. They put her in a clown suit that I think the guy wearing it died in Mickey Rooney or like had a heart attack while he was wearing like, fuck. (laughs) The climax is her in the clown suit, like dangling from like a bungee cord in the middle of an aristocratic ballroom. And she's just like being thrown from one end of the room to the other for like five straight minutes. And it's just this like circus of grotesque humiliation. Like you said, Lydia. Mm hmm. And like I felt very stressed and out. I, for I, I don't feel like George <laughs> and I don't Miller necessarily think she deserved her, and I don't feel comfortable with that. Um, so yeah, yeah, go ahead. Didn't yeah, no. <laughs> and also, so I think I don't know. Maybe I just got too much <laughs> no, contact. I think that's a real struggle with this movie for sure. Um, I f- I feel like that's that's all I can say about it. Any other last thoughts, Jesse? Um, I think you pretty much hit it. Okay, cool. Well, um, where can people watch Babe Pig in the City both, or Babe both if they want Babe to? Babe and Babe 2 are on Netflix. So if you have that service, you have free access. All right. Um, our next two movies are new releases that came out this past week. Um, the first one is War for the Planet of the Apes, the the third movie in this new trilogy of Planet of the Apes movies. Uh, the second one directed by Matt Reeves. Uh, and The third one starring Andy Serkis. This one also stars Steve Zahn and Woody Harrelson. Uh, and this one, it, it, takes, it, it takes place two years years after the second film where the apes are often again off in the wilderness kind of trying to keep to themselves but uh, after the events of the second movie the the humans have have kind of the the they've come into contact with the i guess the the rest of the of the human army and so the army has come and is trying to eradicate all of the apes in the area and it starts this uh you know aforementioned war from the title between the two species. They explained very well in the opening crawl of the movie how all of the titles definitely make sense, <laughs> even though they don't make sense. Um, <laughs> Third one makes sense, I suppose. Yeah. Now nah, the second one is much more of a war movie. Uh, but yeah, what, what did you all... Uh, I know that we have, probably, I think, four people who have saw the movie. Any any thoughts on War for the Planet of the Apes? Uh, I, I really, really liked it. We just got done seeing it a few hours ago. Um, I sort of forced Andrew to... Uh, <laughs> marathon. Have a marathon. <laughs> um, so, like, last night, pretty late, we watched the first one, and I begged him to try to watch the second one last night. He denied. It was after midnight. It was late, like but say. still. And then, so, today, we watched the second and then the third one in theaters today um i thought this was my favorite of the three um i'm kind of stealing but i already had these thoughts but i'm sort of stealing them a little bit from what the flick but um i thought the probably the the thing that stood out most to me was the score i thought the score was really phenomenal um just really had you like running along with the movie um i was constantly had my like hands on my cheeks like stressed out andrew kind of was laughing at me because he's seeing how stressed (laughs) i was because i was just like oh my god every time they would just walk and have like a tender moment i'm like somebody's gonna shoot them but one of the Um, things that's nice about that score is that you can actually tell what instruments are being played mm -hmm. as opposed to it just being this big wash of right yeah yeah and the score is uh, the score is by Michael Giacchino, who's known for doing uh, 
the Star Trek movies and Lost. Um, I think he also, oh, he also did the most recent, the Spider-Man movie that we talked about last week. So, yeah, I thought the score was really good. I thought um, the story, uh, maybe it's because I'd already seen the second one or maybe because the second one sort of stands in the same place a lot. But I felt like the storyline of this one, you know, really took a lot of, I don't know if twist and turns is the right way to phrase it but it it, it was fresh the whole trilogy is twists and turns I think right? I think the story was pretty fresh you know to me you know I was surprised when you end up finding the group where you end up finding them I don't know if I should say that cuz it's a spoiler yeah. but I thought the story was really good the acting was just great and um I was just feeling very, very emotional with mm-hmm. with uh, Caesar at the beginning of the movie, and right. was really kind of furious and passionate with him all throughout. Right. Um, I was just pumped. I thought it was so well done. It sounded good. It looked awesome, and I just really, I don't know. It had <sighs> had my fists pumping and my like constantly heart racing. Like, oh my god, what's gonna happen? Who's gonna die? Yeah. Um, it was definitely my favorite of the three. One of the reasons I think that. Caesar, or one of the ways in which this trilogy has a lot of twists and turns is like how much Caesar changes as a character and how much your allegiance and your feeling towards him change over the course of the film. I was actually, and this is probably a good thing, not sure how the director wanted me to see Caesar for most of this movie. Um, In the first one, it's just kind of a slow progression of him learning how to do stuff, right? And in the second one, he is a moral center uh, whereas there's a lot of chaos happening around him, a lot of um, just destructive personalities in the room. And in this one, he is um, grieving a loss. I won't spoil what the loss is, uh, but he kind of goes on a rampage of revenge in a way that you know is not necessarily the right thing to do. Um, and, and it is mentioned many times that he is kind of taking on the personality traits of the villain from the previous movie. Koba. And... I don't know if the movie ever really reconciles that. He he stays that vengeful, bloodthirsty creature till the end of the movie, and I don't, I don't know how I'm meant to feel about him. That might be great. Like, this could be an awesome subversion of the typical hero's journey that we see in so many blockbusters. Um, Zach, Nathan, what did you guys think about that? Um, I, well, I will admit first firsthand i had to watch all eight of the many iterations of the planet of the ape series for uh, for a work assignment um so by the time i got to this one i was kind of burned out and i think i had maybe started to turn against this series but the main thing for me about this this new trilogy is that they're so grim and so yeah. sad it's like I think I, I think Rise is the best one of this series, and that movie like had me kind of on the edge of uh, of crying the whole the whole movie. But I just you know one of the I, that one's kind of goofy compared to yeah. two and three, which I, I thought was silly at the beginning, but I warmed up to it. Yeah, by the I mean end it's of the film. kind of a uh, I don't know. It's like James Franco and a monkey hanging out. Like that's real real fun yeah. that's funny one. stuff um and they've just gotten sadder and, and grimmer since and this one has this like a lot of images that i don't really know what to do with and i feel a little uncomfortable about that are very evocative of sl- images of slavery uh of the holocaust there are some that really recall some of the most famous images from vietnam um like the one where the uh 
officer is pointing a gun up against a, 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 the head of a member of the Viet Cong. And um, I just don't know because I feel like it doesn't really reach a greater end. It doesn't, it doesn't use those images to, to actually say anything, unlike the original movies from the 60s and 70s, which did pretty consistently, um, even if they were going for a kind of a more, I don't know, low-budget sci-fi drive-in... They have a they have a tighter allegory to them. Whereas yeah, they are very. This feels a, like almost as if it wants to be about every war and every conflict there has ever been throughout history. Yeah, you, know, you have references to Paths of Glory, which is a World War One movie. You have references to Schindler's List, which is a World War Two movie. You have references to Apocalypse Now and Full Metal Jacket, which are Vietnam movies. And then you also have like this biblical epic that's running throughout it, and the end is very evocative of the Book of Exodus, uh, and so. It just is yeah. reaching for like all the important events of world history at the same time. And I'm with you, Nathan. Like As I was leaving, I felt a little uneasy about just all the Holocaust imagery that's in the third act of this movie. And I feel like when you are taking that cultural event, you kind of have a responsibility to treat it very uh, sensitively, right? You got to make yeah. sure you're not... Um, you're not... Uh, sanitizing it you also got to make sure you're not um, f- um, f- fantasticizing it. I'm not sure what the word is I'm looking for uh, gl- yeah. making it seem very exciting uh, and, and like cinematic um, and then you also got to think about what that image means in the story you were telling like I don't really understand why the Holocaust is important to this story necessarily because it seems like it's mostly a personal story about Caesar getting revenge and I don't really understand how that connects to the you know the historical arc of the Holocaust at all Um, though you do have this character played by Woody Harrelson who almost feels like a Nazi general or something and he kind of explains that he's trying to protect his kind from being wiped out by wiping out other groups of people, which seems very white supremacist. But the movie almost wants you to empathize with him and see where he's coming from. Meanwhile, it wants you to see the error in Caesar's logic. And I'm not really sure where my allegiances are meant to lie or how comfortable I am with all of that stuff being included in this uh, blockbuster. Well, I think one of the things too is it's kind of a, I think the second movie this summer, the other one being Alien Covenant, that really hates people, and we're supposed to hate humanity and kind of want humanity's destruction. And that's just like the same day that I saw this, I was watching Dawn for Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, and I was kind of like, I don't know how many more of these movies about how much humanity sucks and how like the world is going to end. How many more of these movies? I can I can do, uh, but at the same time, it's like I, I guess the aims of this whole series haven't been they haven't been political or or, or uh, metaphorical in the way the previous ones have. They're like you said, they're these personal character stories because essentially, kind of I think the function of these movies on a sort of a industrial level is as a Turing test to kind of see how willing we are to sympathize with uh, and feel for CGI um, characters, which I think is very successful, but I think in getting there, it really tries to beat you over the head by saying, hey, look, people suck. These 
computer apes are great. They're wonderful. They're you feel for them, but every but that's just because they're like the alternative, you know, because the the human side is is so awful. Um, and I also, it's like it tries to be, it, it tries to present itself as a serious movie by, like you said, referencing Apocalypse Now, um, which is kind of in the same way that, you know, everyone was like, oh, Logan's a Western because it has ref- a reference to Shane, or Spider-Man is like a John Hughes movie because it directly references Ferris Bueller, and I feel like it's this is trying to say, oh, this is this war movie, capital W, war movie, which we don't really get that often. I mean, sure, Dunkirk is just coming out, and... Um, Hacksaw Ridge, but that's like that's not really a genre that I think has been uh, a constant force or, or presence in in Hollywood since probably nine eleven, since maybe the late nineties. That's not really been been a thing. So I feel like it's trying to evoke this spirit, but not really in a way that I think is the most effective. I think, like we've covered, it it turns to this kind of really easy and a little insensitive imagery of of the holocaust but also just references to other movies that we already know are serious and trying to get there but i uh i think that it has a really nice ending um i mean i think obviously this series is probably going to go on but it it really feels like the end of a trilogy like it really feels like it it, yeah yes i think it works as a succinct trilogy you have a almost, you know, Greek tragedy or Shakespearean arc to this character of Caesar where you see his his rise and glory and fall. I think it would be a disservice to what's come before to make a fourth one, but I have seen articles about Matt Reeves throwing around ideas of doing a fourth film. Yeah, I kind of want them to do one without people at all and just apes and maybe the apes like... I like kind of one of those, you know, older episodic westerns that's just about people building their towns, something like that, where the apes are just building society and settling disagreements in a civil manner, <laughs> learning good moral lessons. I, I kind of would love that. Or just another movie with James Franco and a monkey hanging out. There you yes. go. Resurrected James Franco. Well, uh, War for the Planet of the Apes is in theaters now. So I guess if you were inclined, you can go see that. Um, the other new release that we had f- for this week is The Big Sick. The uh, the the latest from director Michael Showalter. It was written by Kumail Nanjiani and Emily V. Gordon, the married couple, and it is about their story. Um, Kumail plays himself in the movie. He is a stand-up comic um, who, you know, it, I think that the first 30 minutes or so is pretty standard rom-com. He meets uh, the Emily character who's in the movie is played by Zoe Kazan, uh, and they, you know, begin to have a, a relationship. But then uh, later on in the movie, you kind of learn about the circumstances on his side of the family he is he's Pakistani and uh, grew up Muslim and, and his parents are trying to set up an arranged marriage for him to to kind of uh, you know to get him on that path and uh, and then of course uh, as as it does when you're in a relationship your partner goes into a coma a med- medically induced coma for a while and causes you to to deal with that um but the emily character she she gets sick and, and goes into a coma and that's kind of leads to kumail having to meet her parents who are played by holly hunter and ray romano um i don't know is there anything else i, met, I left out no that pretty much covers it yeah um but yeah the big sick uh jesse what did you uh you and andrew both saw this what, what were your impressions of the big sick I think I liked it a lot more than Andrew did, um, but 
does that mean? Well, I don't know. Now I'm like worked up to it. I'm wondering what I'll have to say about it. <laughs> I had all this stuff planned out for War of Planet of the Apes, and now here I am. I just really liked it. I thought that Holly Hunter probably stole the show most of all. Um, yeah, she Her really character good. is just sassy and fun, and um, she's just feisty, and you're kind of annoyed with her, but also you're like, yeah, okay, yeah, do your thing. Um, it's also just nice to see Holly Hunter. Yeah. Like, she, I don't feel like she's in that many movies. Mm-hmm. Um, her and Ray Romano, too. Like, that was a really good pairing of, mm-hmm. like, underused comic slash dramatic actors that I really like, though I don't think about very much. I've seen, what's it, K- Kamal? I've uh, seen Kamal. Kamal. I've seen him in a, a few other things, um, but, and I, I always am never sure quite how I feel about him. He's this very awkward, stale humor kind of yeah. guy, and in other things I've seen him in, I'm sort of like... I can't tell if I think he's funny or I just feel uncomfortable. And I think this is the final point where I found that he it does make me uncomfortable, but it's cool. Like, right. um, I don't know. So, so to me, I think of all the other things I've seen him in, um, it, he worked best in this movie, probably because it was so personal to him. Yeah. And um, he's it, playing he's, himself, yeah, of course. He, yeah, yeah. So I felt like it, it worked best. Um, Andrew, go ahead. Um. I enjoyed this movie. I thought it was very pleasant. It had a lot of laughs throughout. I bought the romance um, and really enjoyed the awkward tension between Kamal and Emily's parents. Um, though there is one... I don't, I don't feel like very strongly about it. I mean, it, it made me laugh and it was amusing, but I don't think it's like going to be on my year-end list or anything like that. Uh, I do have one kind of larger gripe, which is that I'm not sure how well this movie is going to age. Um... There's so many of the conflicts and so many of the jokes kind of predicate themselves upon uh, Islamophobia in America. You know, um, there will be he does stand up the the character in the movie, and a lot of his jokes begin with "I'm Pakistani, comma and," and it goes on from there. And just like so much of the humor derives from the fact that Americans don't understand people who live in the Middle East or understand people who believe in Islam. Um, And I think that as we as a culture like get over that like ignorance, this movie might feel like a, 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 you know, a bitter artifact, a bittersweet artifact of a time when we were just really ignorant of this culture. I think the fact still remains that we are still we are we're in that era now and true, I think it's true. important for those stories to be told and for us to like ease up a little bit like there's so many points in the movie where someone's like uh you're from the middle east you're like the people who kill us and he's like no 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 like you don't understand at all so let me mm-hmm. just like really nicely tell you that stop being an asshole and there are um, some good laughs to be gleaned there yeah. and some truths to be conveyed to an audience that you know this is a this is a going very wide it's going to be a mainstream movie a lot of the people sitting in front of this screen are going to kind of have a bit of culture shock in a good way yeah but i think that in the future that might not be i there. think that that's irrelevant though i just think like this is a story that needs to be told and i'm glad that it's out yeah. here now so people can loosen up a little bit and Maybe it'll really open people's eyes, and maybe maybe it does lead to itself being irrelevant. But I think it's very relevant now, and maybe that, and hopefully, I don't know. I think it's important mm-hmm. that a story is being told by somebody who's really persecuted right now. My last thing that I would say about it, on that note, is um, 
A movie that I have not seen, but I've had conversations with Nathan and Dylan about is uh, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, Mm -hmm. which was like a very politically relevant movie for its time, but now has has aged very poorly because it's just kind of about white people getting over their own racism and we can't buy that conflict anymore. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that this movie, this movie is much more centered on Kumail than it is about the people around him who don't understand his culture. So it has that going for it. But I do still think so much of the humor comes from that place that I'm not sure how it'll age. Uh, Zach, any any comments you want to chime in on this? Um, I mean, I don't I don't think we'll have to worry about. It'll be at least 50 years before we get over Islamophobia, so I think we'll be okay for a while. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I I really enjoyed the Big Sick. Um, like I said, the first 30 minutes or so is is very um, prototypical rom com. I think that, and I think it succeeds because uh, its two leads, Kumail Nanjiani and Zoe Kazan, do a very great job at being charming and and kind of setting a groundwork for their relationship. Uh, and so whenever she goes to the coma, and you have to, and, and you are, you know, it's it's more about Kumail. Uh, in his relationship with the Holly Hunter and Ray Romano character, um, I think that's 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 interesting. But I really think that the the the, uh, the concept that kind of set this apart as as something a little bit better than the cut of you know cut and dry, very typical rom com is that it, it it gives a lot of a lot of time. It's about two hours long, so I feel like a normal rom com would be about an hour and a half, and it gives about thirty minutes of that of that extra time to focusing on Kumail and his family and kind of what it means to to be Pakistani, not just in America, but just in general. And this concept of what family means to them and, and their culture uh, and their religion, uh, because it's it's something that's a, that's very sacred. I think that the the scene late in the film where uh, his with his parents confront him kind of about about his uh, about his relationship with Emily and, and what he's doing with his life and uh, in, in the back and forth between them is is very charged and very um you know, it, it, I think it, it has a, a lot of weight and you know emotional weight to it because you can. It's it's something that I don't think we necessarily deal with at, at, both in America or in, especially in a in a you know prototypically Christian America where if you, I mean the only the only the, the closest example you can think of is is something you know like in the in the fifties and sixties if you were if if you were white and you were dating somebody who was black. You would maybe have very similar, uh, similar, you know, dealings with with your family, but for the most part, that's something that we don't really deal with as as much today. And I think that a lot of that um, it explored a lot of a lot of aspects of Pakistani culture that um, I think I knew about, but I, it was it was much more interesting to see somebody. Um, kind of dive into that and, and explain it. I mean, there's literally like a plot. There's like a point. You know, there's a what is it? A, a point in the movie where he's doing this. Yeah, he's doing this show. one man show where it's yeah. literally he's just teaching uh, people about Pakistan, about Pakistan and Pakistani that was, culture. That was kind of the the point in the movie where I was feeling my gripe the strongest because it very much does feel like an explanatory infomercial on Pakistani culture for a white audience. I think it's um, okay though. But I mean, it, it's it's. Great, I'm glad we have that. But we're talking about, you know, movies that maybe will endure for for longer time and and I don't know if this will necessarily hold up as much. But I had a good time watching it. It is funny. You should go see it. Um 
And, you know, it's a, it's a personal story um, made, you know, written by Kumail and his wife, and I'm happy to support them as well. So, so yeah. All right, well, The Big Sick is in, uh, in theaters now. Um, we have about five-ish, five-ish minutes left. Nathan, I know you had one that you wanted to talk about. Yeah, so today, um, actually, I'm going to back up for a second. So over the past couple of months, I don't think I've talked about any of uh, his movies on the podcast, but I've been doing a little bit of a personal project where I've been trying to go through as much of the filmography of uh, the American director Joseph von Sternberg as I can. Um, really, uh, my first big memorable engagement with his movies was last September, last May. I don't know why I said September, but last May. Um, I was in New York and the Metrograph Theater was doing a Mar- uh, Marlena Dietrich retrospective. And uh, as you may know, Joseph von Sternberg and Marlena Dietrich were real life husband and wife. Um, so I saw the Scarlet Empress there um, and that kind of blew my brain open a little bit. So I decided to dive into Joseph von Sternberg's um, other filmography and his other movies. And so today I watched my 10th uh Sternberg film this year, 1953's uh, Anadahan, which was the last film that uh, Sternberg completed in his life. Uh, It was filmed in Japan with Japanese actors speaking Japanese and a Japanese crew, Um, though Sternberg wrote, uh, directed, and uh, photographed the film himself. Um, he uh, was unhappy with the, the movie and tried to tinker with it for, for several years, um, but eventually gave up on it and taught film at UCLA for the rest of his life. Um, and it didn't do very well in the U.S. at all when it opened. Um, this is a very interesting movie because, like I said, it's all in Japanese. There is an American narrator speaking in kind of one of those 40s, 50s uh, kind of really newsreel-like voices uh, you know, think the think the opening newsreel and uh, the new, news on the march uh, in Citizen Kane, that kind of voice, um, which at first was a little grating, but as it went on, I, I almost felt like it was um, sort of like a lot of the voiceovers in uh, kind of hard boiled detective noirs, which I which is always a quality I like, as well as the ancient Japanese. Uh, kind of tradition of, of narration uh, for stories with, uh, and um, binshi narration, which is kind of the um, practice of, of uh, narrating silent films, because essentially this, this film is narrated, there are no subtitles. Um, so in some sense, it's kind of a silent movie, unless you know Japanese, and I'm sure it's, you know, you have two languages speaking at once, and it's kind of uh, weird, probably. But... Um, a lot of the movie doesn't have uh, narration, and you just kind of uh, get get uh, uh, emotional beats through the the performance and through the tone of voice, even if you don't understand the actual uh, words. And so the movie opens with a title card that says a postscript to the Pacific War, and it's really um, about um, World War Two and the Pacific Front from the Japanese perspective. Um, it follows a group of Japanese sailors who are drafted into the military, into the Navy. Um, they, they wreck on an island after being attacked um, and find there the former owner of a plantation and a woman who has been living there with him. Um, 
And at first, the the soldiers are really hopeful. They're like, oh, we're going to be found. Japan's going to find us. They're going to send ships for us. Or they're of the belief that that um, the Americans will attack, so they're constantly preparing for battle, for a battle that eventually never comes. But as time goes on, years start to go by. Um, they it kind of, it all descends into chaos and disarray, and they all start uh, becoming alcoholics, basically. And they all um, try to start wooing the woman Keiko um, uh, after uh, her air quotes, husband dies. Um, they, they, she kind of becomes the most powerful person on the island and they're all trying to, uh, to take that power from her or to, uh, to, to use her or to, to get with her sexually. Um, but it also at the same time, it's very interesting because Sternberg is known for these very kind of romantic, lusty, sultry, dreamy movies um, this has a lot of documentary touches in it. About halfway through the movie, the war actually ends, and there's real uh, uh, footage of Japanese soldiers returning home after the war and, and seeing their families for the first time. And they, you know, they they all kind of have this shell shocked look in their eyes and are really overcome by emotion. Um, and that's just halfway through the movie. The rest of the movie is really gut wrenching because, spoiler, um, the soldiers find out that the war ends, but they're convinced that it's not real and that it's just an enemy tactic to, uh, to overtake them. So they live on the island for seven more years after the war ends until they're finally picked up by a Japanese ship. Um, so it kind of reminded me of, of, of Clint Eastwood's directorial work and how it really kind of is viewing soldiers as, as laborers and as workers and, and looking at war from their perspective. But it also reminded me a lot of Taboo, which we talked a lot about a few weeks ago, being a movie by an American director set somewhere in the Pacific with a cast and crew made up of people from that, that those specific regions. And also because, like Taboo, like Sunrise, also by F.W. Murnau, it tries to go for this really universal um, story and tries to kind of reach the entire world, even if it's still culturally specific and set in a specific place and specific to that place. Um, so yeah, uh, Ananahan, uh, there's a newly remastered DVD and Blu-ray out on Kino Lorber. Um, that's the version I watched. It's great. I got it from the local library. So do that. Before we wrap up on part one, can I recommend people go look at two things on the internet? Zach? No, we don't have enough time. Okay, uh, <laughs> that's fine. Uh, the first thing you should go listen, look at on the internet is uh, on cinematary.com. You can find my text review of The Little Hours, which I think is also correctly pronounced as The Little Whores, um, which is a great medieval comedy that is just like out of left field, out in theaters right now. The other thing that you should watch on the internet is the trailer for Guillermo del Toro's The Shape of Water, which looks amazing. Are you getting paid for that? I I would gladly. I think you. Get paid I think you, to promote the shape of. I water. think you need to uh, disclose <laughs> your employer. Guillermo del Toro is not currently paying me, but I would not be opposed to let the record show. <laughs> <laughs> All right, um, we're gonna take a short break. We'll be back talking Ugetsu in part two. So stick around. Hello, Cinematary listeners. This is Zach Dennis with an important message because I have not talked to you enough during this episode. Uh, Cinematary would like you to know that we do not want your money. We're not clamoring for your dollars. At this time, we just want to enjoy each other's company and talk about the movies and feel our, you know, 
distribute our thoughts to the world and become podcasting moguls. You know, simple stuff. No money involved. Uh, however, there are a few things that you could do to help out the show. We would really appreciate it. The first thing is review us on iTunes. I know literally every podcast asks you this. They're like, please review us on iTunes. But it's like important because I don't know, iTunes, this is what they do. This is how this is how the Apple Lords constrict us and keep us in their system. That's just what happens. So we need a, a nice little review. Just take like two minutes one day. Be like, this is podcast review time. Put us on the list. Uh, secondly, you can tweet us. We're at Cinematary on Twitter. Or better yet, send us an email. We're Cinematary at Yahoo.com. So we can hear from you. If you're just like Zach, uh, you, you have terrible taste. Why do you keep talking about these superhero movies? Uh, you keep talking. Also, you keep talking about these Japanese movies where all they do is, is, is drink sake and smoke cigarettes and talk about how life's awful. And I'll be like, yeah, what you're wrong. And you'll be like, yeah, but I'm just emailing you and it'll be a whole thing it'll be a nice discourse think about it and finally please tell your friends and family you know they should know as well i'm sure they like movies i'm sure they like podcasts we don't know uh to recap review on itunes itunes review day do that secondly send your thoughts twitter email one of those do it third share with your friends and family we would love it do it please thank you now let's get back to the show of episode 153 of Cinematary. In this part, we will be continuing our Young Critics Watch Old Movies series with 1953's Ugetsu. Uh, it is directed by Kenji Mizoguchi from a script by Matsutaro Kawaguchi and Yash- uh, Yoshikada Yoda, which is my favorite name already. The best. Uh, drawing its plot uh, particularly Particularly from the tales The House in the Thicket and The Lust of the White Serpent. The film is set in Azuchi Momoyama period Japan. It is about a peasant farmer and potter who leaves his wife and young son during the Civil War and is seduced by a spirit that threatens his life. A subplot in the film also involves his friend who dreams of becoming a great samurai and achieves this at the unintended expense of his wife. Uh, after the success of his previous film, The Life of uh, uh, Oharu, uh, Mizoguchi was offered to make a film by his old friend uh, Masachi uh, Nagata uh, at, at his film studio. Uh, the deal promised Mizoguchi complete artistic control and a large budget. Despite this, Mizoguchi was eventually pressured to make a less pessimistic ending for the film. His screenwriter and longtime collaborator Yoshikata Yodo said that originally Mizoguchi did not envision making an anti-war film, instead wishing to co- capture the sensations and uh, lucidity of the book. Ugetsu Monogatari. Guitari. Yeah. Uh, despite initial in, uh, intentions as the film developed, Yoda said. <laughs> Yoda said. Uh, anti- <laughs> sorry. Said anti war messages, particularly how war makes women suffer, kept surfacing and soon became the most prominent theme. While writing the script, Mizaguchi told Yoda whether, quote, whether war originates in the ruler's personal motives or in some personal concern, how violence disguised as war oppresses and tor- torments the populace populace uh, both physically and spiritually I want to emphasize this as the main theme of the film 
During the shooting, Yoda was constantly rewriting and revising scenes due to Mizuguchi's perfectionism. Uh, the film was Machiko Kayu, Kayo's second collaboration with Mizoguchi as she had a small role in his 1944 film, The Three uh, Danjuros. She had collaborated much, much more frequently with Masu, uh, Masayuki Mori, as, but as Lady uh, Wakasa, uh, Kyo's uh, costume was modeled after fashion before the Edo period, and her face was designed to appear similar to a mask common in no theater. Mizuguchi told his cinematographer Kazu uh, Miyagawa that he wanted the film to, quote, unroll seamlessly like a scroll painting. Uh, Mizuguchi never personally handled the camera and did not participate in planning the lighting of his film. Uh, To achieve the appearance that the filmmakers wanted, uh, Miyagawa kept lighting low and filmed as near to to sunset as circumstances would allow. Many of the shots were taken from cranes, with uh, Miyagawa claiming in claiming in 1992 that these shots made up 70% of the film. Miyagawa also stated that this film was the only occasion in which Mizuguchi complimented him for his camera work. Seems like Miyagawa was a little bit needy with, you know, (laughs) but that's just me. Uh, according to Professor Martha P. Nokenson, a common interpretation of the film is that Mizoguchi refashioned the stories of Ugetsu Monogatari to express regret about the pro-war extremism leading to World War II, with Mizoguchi personally having made the pro-war propaganda film The 47 Ronin in 1941. These reflections on militarism, greed, and arrogance connected with audiences not only in Japan, but around the world in the wake of the war. The subplot of Tobi, Tobi and Ohama particularly reflects the comfort when Women who were made into prostitutes by the Imperial J- Japanese Army. Mizoguchi struggled with Dai to give the subplot an unhappier ending that what appear than what appears in the film, in line with real comfort women uh, with real comfort women's experiences after the war. However, Toby's subplot rema- reveals the mistake of war can also be a quote tragic comedy. Professor Robin Wood argues that, that the film's depiction of the main ghost character evolves from the mere demon of the lust of the white serpent into the more humane and tragic Lady Wakasa. And this makes the film, or makes the story more complex. Wood further opinion, opinions the combination of the story with the house and the tr- thicket, combining the male protagonist of each tale into one character, Jinjiro, also connects the demon character and the ghost wife. Both Lady Wakasa and Miyagi are killed by a male dominated society and both are wronged by Jinjiro. Wood believes Ugetsu can be considered a feminist film for its exploration of the negative impact of the patriarchy. Uh, Ugetsu is often regarded as a masterwork of Japanese cinema and a definitive piece during Japan's golden age of film. It is one of a number of films that is arguably more popular in Western countries than it is in Japan. Japanese film historian uh, Tadeo Sato remarked that while this film, along with Mizoguchi's other works of the period, The Crucified Lovers and Sancho, The Bailiff, uh, was probably not meant specifically to be sold to Westerners as as an, quote, exotic piece. It was perceived by studio executives as the kind of film that would not necessarily make a profit in Japanese theaters, but would win awards at international film festivals. In 1954, the New York Times wrote about the movie, saying, Much more than the language that is spoken in Ugetsu, will be, uh, the Japanese film that opened last night at the plaza, will be hard for American audiences to comprehend, hard for even the mo- most attentive patron to grasp as it goes along. For both the theme and the style of exposition in this Venice award-winning film have a strangely obscure, uh, infert- infantile, almost studiously perplexing quality. Uh, for the Criterion Collection 2005, Philip Lapotte, 
uh, wrote that often appearing on lists of the 10 greatest films of all time, called one of the most beautiful films ever made or the most masterful work of Japanese cinema, Ugetsu comes to us awash in superlatives. No less acclaimed has been its maker, Kenji Mizoguchi, uh, quote, like Bach, Titian, and Shakespeare. He is the greatest in the in his art, enthused the film critic Jean Duquette. Not far behind was Jean-Luc Godard, who declared him, quote, the greatest of Japanese filmmakers, or quite simply, one of the greatest of filmmakers. And the New York Times critic Vincent Canby, who enthralled and told him as uh, him as, quote, one of the greatest directors of the sound era. In other words, Mizoguchi belongs in the same exalted company as Jean Renoir, Orson Welles, Carl Dreyer, Alfred Hitchcock, uh, Sergi Eisenstein, Rob, Robert Bresson and Akira Kurosawa, who looked up to the older man as his master. This near-unanimous reverence of both, uh, for both Ugetsu and Mizoguchi among world filmmakers and critics may be puzzling to the American movie-going public, for whom both names remain relatively unfamiliar. In order to understand what the fuss is about, we may need to take a step back from these superlatives, or at least put them in context. Um, Roger Ebert wrote about the film, saying, The period detail is accurate and rich. The city mar- marketplace, the headquarters of the samurai Toby visit to the to a shop to buy armor and, sp- and a spear Jinjuro's haste when he may asks another merchant to watch his pr- prize pots for he must hurry after lady wakasa all of these create a feudal world in which life is hard and, and escape comes through these silly dreams of men Women are more cautious, and there is a blunt realism in the sequence where Miyagi, left behind, tries to protect and feed their son as armies loot and rape the countryside. At the end of Ugetsu, aware we have seen a fable, we also feel curiously as if we have witnessed true lives and fates. All right, so I think the the first question I had about Ugetsu was one of the points I made about um, kind of this as... In, in kind of its place in history, um, I mentioned that, you know, Mizoguchi didn't necessarily want it to be an anti-war film at first, but it kind of fell, it kind of fell into that. And then uh, the, the, the one, uh, Professor Martha Nelkinson, you know, talked about it as, as this pro-war extreme, you know, his, his, or him expressing his regret about the pro-war extremism leading to World War II. Um, you know what? How did you guys view this movie in terms of its kind of historical value uh, coming out in 1953? Not less when the actual time period of the movie is taking place. Well, uh, one thought that I had was comparing this movie to the work of a Japanese director that came out about 10 years after, which is uh, Kaneto Shindo. His movies Kuroniko and Onibaba, I feel like, are very in the vein of. Um, Ugetsu in the way that they're they're coming out in the post-war era in Japan, uh, but they're set in the the ancient Edo period, and they're dealing with the same the the same kind of post-war climate of Japan in in the contemporary time period, but they're kind of showing it through these these metaphorical past fables where uh, we're seeing the ravages of war lead villages into desperation but it's a it's a different war they're different villages um and and it's it doesn't make it as pointedly political because they're not they don't have any like contemporary countries to point to but it's kind of expressing that emotional state of japanese culture at the time uh i think one of the things you mentioned Zach from the 2005 essay that the Criterion put out uh, 
it was kind of satisfying some demand that that Western audiences had for like this exotic Japanese past and like really diving into the period details. And that to me is really uncomfortable, but I guess if it comes out in 53 and Japan's been a pretty traditionally closed off country, uh, right up until the post-war basically. Yeah. I don't know. It, yeah, I mean, it's 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 not like in in to that to that point, you know, it's kind of like uh, people had this one idea of Japan. One, they don't really know much about it, and two, they you know, it's it's post war that they, they they have this this much more negative idea. So I think that this was the, the, maybe they were clamoring for a more idealistic. Yeah, I, I guess exotic would be a good term because they were looking for something that was much what they were envisioning rather than what they were actually seeing. Well, I kind of, I, 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 when I watch this movie, um, there are a few sequences where inevitably world war two, um, came to mind. Like when, um, I think it's, uh, is it Kinjuro? Who's the, who's the one who survives? Um, the one who, Kinjuro is the, like the, he's like the the main character. The, 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 he's the potter. Yeah. So yeah. when he comes back to his village and it's just this like has this this very jagged um set design to it and it's just this hollowed out graveyard um where where all the buildings have just turned to rubble. I mean that's an image like that is is sort of automatically brings those connotations to mind. But I also wonder since Zach you were Talking about this movie's reception in the West being maybe um, maybe different, since I mean that's I think that's usually the case with um, non-American cinemas is like the the filmmakers from those countries that we know in the West are not necessarily the the popular acclaimed national filmmakers in those countries. Like I mean, you look at uh, a country like Iran. Um, where are you know maybe you say Iranian cinema and somebody from the West who knows about movies Abbas Kiarostami might come to mind but but you know he was a filmmaker who didn't have the same reception in Iran that he did in the West so I, I can't help but wonder just because sometimes being in the United States um, and not being really on the ground historically I wonder if if um, we have a tendency to overlink films from certain countries to specific events in their history. Like, I, you know, obviously, I think there are a lot of movies that have grappled with with uh, from Japan that have grappled with the aftermath of World War II and with the bomb. Um, but I mean, not all of them do. So I think sometimes we have a, a tendency to overassign. Same thing with like Hong Kong. I think it's very easy to say, oh, this movie is from Hong Kong and it came out in 1996. And you can see anxieties about the handover of, of Hong Kong from Britain to China, um, which I think, yeah, is, is fair. But I think sometimes maybe our own limited historical knowledge and perspective causes us to attach it to one specific event because that's all we really know. I feel like I, in saying all that, I didn't end up actually saying much about the movie itself. <laughs> no, that's good. I mean, 
don't want to just kind of force it into a no that was a, a great point about <laughs> purporting because it's also based on japanese literary source yeah. like the stories and those wouldn't be about i mean it's this can i ask about the oh sorry it's the same thing kind of like uh sorry <laughs> we're all just talking over each other um but it's like during our Wong Kar Wai series when we were talking about Ashes of Time, and I think we all struggled with that movie just because it is coming from this specific Chinese literary tradition. Um, and I think in the same way, this is probably coming from like, from a, uh, from a, you know, this is coming from a, a, a literary tradition that we, I mean, I'm assuming none of us have read, uh, did any background reading. Oh, Okay. Yeah, so I think that's a good point saying that, like, it's also connected to this other thing, you know, even if it came out at a certain time. No. The, the stories were included in the Criterion booklet when I got the DVD, but I did not yeah. read because <laughs> I didn't have time. Same. We have not done our homework. Yeah. I think it was nice the quote that you gave in the info sheet, Zach, uh, uh, Mizuguchi saying that he wanted it to be kind of like a scroll that unfurls itself to the audience. Um, I was thinking a lot about the structure of this movie and being a little perplexed by it just because it really does feel like a collection of short stories in a way. I mean, I know we're telling one narrative about um, these these two couples that come from the same village and the way that their lives intersect, but the way that Mizoguchi is cutting back and forth between them, it's almost like you forget the other neighbor's story exists while you're watching this one and you'll get like 15 or 20 minutes with one of the men and then all of a sudden you're snapped into a completely different reality because once those paths diverge, they don't really come back together again until the very, very end and it, it makes for a strange experience. Um, what did you guys, uh, how do you guys feel about that? What, what was your, your headspace while you were watching the movie? Were you able to track what was going on well enough or were you uh, disoriented like I was? Not, not initially. I was a little confused on what was going on for a little while, at least until like for the, for the beginning of the movie they have, I kind of was, was, I knew what was going on. And then they have the, the very famous sequence where they're on, you know, they're on the boat and they're going across the water. Uh, and then they drop off the, uh, the wife and the child and, and move on to the city. And it took me a while to figure out like how everybody connected again after that happened um it was like that was just kind of a strange and so later on when the film when it kind of you know clears up all what's happening it made more sense but it 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 kind of goes from this the scene where they're you know running from their home because this army is coming through and pillaging and and taking over this their village and or whatever and then they escape to the i guess to the town and it it just it, it seems to kind of like switch what it's doing very quickly and, and it's a little bit disorienting. And as it's cycling through those characters, we go from the Potter character to the wannabe samurai and then for a little while to the wannabe samurai's wife and we get this really brutal rape sequence. Um, but it never quite cycles back around to the Potter's wife. And 
that may be where a lot of my disorientation came from because it, it felt like it was setting up this expectation of like, okay, we're going to get these four people's stories and go back and forth between all four of them. And you're kind of left hanging on that one thread, which of course makes for a great uh, climactic sequence when he comes home to his wife and there's that awesome uh, 180 degree pan uh, around the home. He comes, he comes back to his old house. It's, it's dark. It looks like nobody's lived here for years. Uh, and then the camera spins all the way around. And when he comes to the other side of the house, it's lit up, it's clean. And he sees his wife in there. I actually had to rewind the DVD to like, make sure I was seeing what I thought I was seeing. Uh, but it adds kind of this spectral quality to the whole thing that I think that, um, I don't remember who it was that made the quote in the info sheet, Zach, but somebody who said that he very subtly moves back and forth between the spirit world and the physical world. It's not a clear delineation at all. Yeah. Well, that's one of the things when I was doing research for the sheet, um, I saw a lot of quotes and a lot of writing about was kind of how how he he, he, how he moves the camera around in his movies. They talked uh, Ebert uh, in his review talked a little bit and I saw some writing in other places. I think it might have been the Criterion sheet where they compare him to like Ozu and where Ozu likes to just kind of be likes to put the camera in one place and let everything play out in front of that. Um, Mizuguchi seems to he likes to kind of glide around and and give this kind of slow moving. They, they, uh, whenever he just yeah, whenever he described it as he wanted it to unravel as a as a scroll um, as a scroll painting, there was somebody one of the writers described it as kind of his paint his his films feel like that because it feels like you're kind of it feels like you're almost like reading a book that's just kind of one long scroll. It's like you're going along the path that way. And, and that was something that, that a lot of people latched onto. So this might go a little bit out there. So just hang, hang with me for a second. Yeah. But I, so there is one I think I know you're sequence. Do you, do you even know? Do you know? I, I think uh, yeah, there is one sequence in this movie where it just was like, boom, clicked for me. And it's when uh, um, Genjuro is in the hot spring with the with, uh, ghost lady and the camera comes out like from the hot spring, pans down to the ground, to the grass, keeps going. Yeah, it's a discretion Keeps going, shot. going, going, and then dissolves into the grass again and comes up and you see them having a picnic. And so I've been thinking a lot about lately um, partially because of uh, Twin Peaks Season 3, which I think uses this technique in a really effective way, and also because of just, like I said in Part 1, watching a lot of Joseph von Sternberg's movies, I've been thinking a lot about dissolves, and I feel like a cut in movies is 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 kind of a, a violent act. It's it's very harsh. It's, you know, it's like blinking. Um, <laughs> but... Yeah, it's... Well, I'm, it's I, I get what you, you mean, know what yeah. I'm saying. Like it's it, it abruptly it, it closes, pulls it you out of closes the moment, you, whereas a, a dissolve does not. Exactly, it closes you away, whereas a dissolve continues that moment. And a dissolve is like you're just keeping your eyes open the whole time, but because you're seeing everything, it becomes more dreamlike, and temporalities and landscapes are able to 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 fuse together. So I feel like he's kind of. And Hollywood has spent a lot of time, like, hiding yeah. the edits. Like, the invisible Hollywood style. It's like, so you don't notice the smooth as possible. No, that's okay. Uh, that's, yeah. And and I think by having these dissolves, it, like, blurs the lines between 
the physical world and the spirit world. Um, so I think he's, he's kind of pulling us along and making this question. I mean, obviously sort of the twist ending really makes us question things where it's like, Oh, wow. Uh, you know, she was a ghost. Ooh. Uh, <laughs> that is the best way of revealing the twist of this movie. Um, and so it's it's like because of that, you're you're kind of questioning the perspective you've been given. So I think he's leading you along and blurring the distinction between between those those two realms or planes of existence. Was that too far out? I was guess I was guessing you were about to talk about the Wolf of Wall Street based on the uh, the letterbox review. I oh, saw no, but earlier. I should mention now that you threw it out there. Um, yeah, yeah, one yeah, of my, do it, one of my friends, um, the writer uh, Kinji Fuji, Fujishima, uh, he wrote about this movie on Letterboxd. Um, I can't find the exact review right now, but he said that the movie that was on his mind while watching it was The Wolf of Wall Street just because um, in the main characters of both of those movies are sort of on the outside and are trying to do anything they can to, to put their family forward. Um, and it ends up destroying them and being their, their downfall. Um, and they end up leaving their initial lover for somebody who's in the upper class. Yeah. And I was also, this is another out there comparison, but I was also kind of thinking about the world's end with this movie. And that, and that film is uh, uh, basically about leaving your, your home and assuming that it will wait for you and that things won't change and then coming back there to find that that's not true at all. And it's like both of the men in this movie assume that things are going to be the same for them after having gone off, which I guess maybe then I know I just said, oh, you know, we shouldn't try to shoehorn this into saying something about the war, but maybe that is kind of about soldiers going off to war um, and, uh, you know, they come back and everything has kind of moved on without them and then they're sort of um, forgotten. One of the one of the writing I came up I came across was uh, this that this film was like was kind of the, its presentation of like the vanity of of man and how they neglect their their family and how this is kind of a, a, a critique of of historic men and in, in feudal Japanese culture. Um, you know, in, in, in what they what they talked about was that in the relationship with Lady Wakasha, uh, Jinjiro is is kind of insignificant, and he's he's you know he's kind of seduced into uh, into into by something like greater um, that he really can never like put you know can really comprehend. He really can never put it into words like what he's really you know alert to her by other than just kind of the the mystical majesty of her. Um, but like you know, by by, the, by doing that, he neglects his family and he fails to kind of appreciate the 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 good you know, the blessing of good life that he had in the first place, and in the process loses that. And I think that that kind of, you know, it, it doesn't do it as much with the other character. But I think that it kind of has that that critique of of, uh, of of vanity that I thought was kind of interesting as well. I feel like the the samurai character is very much a a buffoon that is presented to us as a critique of vanity more so than the potter. I mean, it was just so funny to see the scene where 
Uh, he's finally a samurai, and he's sitting down uh, with, I think, food or, or sake or something with all these people who are admiring him. And they'll ask him, like, how do I be a samurai? And he goes on this long explanation of, like, all of the all the disciplines that you have to learn to be a samurai. But he really just, like, stole some armor and stole a head that had already been cut off a guy, <laughs> you know? To and But he's presenting himself as this, like, perfect heroic figure um and presumably well no i guess i guess we see him return back to the to the original town as well i don't know if i quite remember how he circles back um what what was the reason why he kind of falls off his pedestal he runs he well he's he's having his big his big shindig with all of his his new army buddies and all that stuff and they go to the the geisha house and one of the geishas is his wife and so he's just like oh "Oh my gosh my wife she's a prostitute now what was i doing i was almost reminded a little bit uh while watching this movie of charles dickens um just because I feel like there's the the one that came uh, to my mind most was Great Expectations, just because I felt like the the ghost the ghost lady of the manor was almost like Miss Havisham from that novel in a way, who's kind of who's luring uh, this 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 commoner to the upper echelons, and um, sort of leads him astray. But also, I wanted to we talked about this before we started recording and I wanted to bring it up but do you guys think that uh Jerry Zucker's 1990 uh Academy Award nominated supernatural romance film Ghost with Patrick Swayze and Whoopi Goldberg is somehow an adaptation of this movie just because you have the ghost you have the love the horniness you have pottery and ghost pottery um, do you think that, do you think that, uh, Jerry Zucker of, uh, airplane and top secret and rat race fame is, uh, has, is a Mitsuguchi, uh, Stan? Do you guys think that? What are you guys, you know, I'm putting that point aside. What are your guys feelings about Mitsuguchi in terms of like the broad canon of big filmmakers we've talked about? I mean, you read in the info sheet, Zach, people kind of thinking of him as like the Shakespeare or the the Bach of his craft um how how do you think about him especially like maybe in comparison to other Japanese filmmakers like Ozu or Kurosawa or Shindo um I think I would need to see more of his his stuff um I I definitely kind of there there was parts of his style that that uh were were interesting and attractive, but I don't know. For the I was still I don't know. I was still kind of fumbling through following the story for for the most part that I couldn't really. I would like to watch it again so that I can kind of zero in on on some of the stuff that he was just doing cinematically. I think I also agree with Zach and that I need to see way more because he's such a pro, was such a prolific filmmaker. And recently, um, I'm sure some people listening participated in this, but others may not have known about it. But recently on Twitter, I did do this thing every year. That's kind of like the film Twitter mock sight and sound poll where everybody submits their top 10 ballots for their choices for the top 10 greatest movies of all time. And um, I've done it two years now. And this year, Mitsuguchi shot up to like the third or fourth most mentioned filmmaker on people's ballots. 
but there was no consensus favorite and it was just kind of like all across the board like 10 plus movies were mentioned directed by him um and i think it's it's kind of like if if uh, there's going to be any comparison to to ozu or the other prolific japanese filmmakers it's that for me uh it's hard to get a clear grasp of of mitsuguchi or ozu's filmographies just from one movie they're just so deep and extensive um that i think you you probably have to dig through them all yeah um lydia we haven't heard much from you what what were you what, what did you think of ugetsu and kind of Mizu, uh, Mizoguchi's style yeah i would like nathan was saying i feel like you'd probably need to dig deeper into japanese cinema to be able to make a comparison between ozu or kurosawa or whoever and i this is the first Mizoguchi film i've ever seen and I guess what kind of stuck out for me and what sticks out a lot in a lot of Japanese cinema is kind of very slow, deliberate pacing. Like, even when kind of hysterical, scary things are happening, like, uh, he gets married to a ghost woman, or when uh, Miyagi is murdered by the soldiers like uh, the camera is kind of distant and it's just, things play out very slowly and maybe that's not fair to compare to like Ozu or whatever but I feel the same sort of deliberateness from a lot of Japanese movies from this era I would say that um, Ugetsu I, I appreciate um kind of what I've gleaned from it in terms of the, the stylistics um, and some of the connections to, to post-war Japan and the commentary on capitalism and stuff like that. But I feel a little distant from it, maybe just because Mizoguchi has a singular style and this is all of our introduction to him. Uh, but I have a hard time thinking about this movie without comparing it to the works of Kaneto Shindo. I just feel like Kuroniko and Onibaba are so indebted to what Mizoguchi was doing in movies like Ugetsu. They're kind of like quasi-horror movies. Like they have a spiritual, spooky element to them, but they're more character studies and political pieces than they are, you know, straight-up genre flicks. And I watched both of those multiple times before getting around to this and coming to it from the reverse perspective. Maybe I'm just like a Philistine, like noob cinephile here, but like, I kind of feel like Shindo improved upon the formula in a lot of ways. Uh, but of course, Mizuguchi was the guy who laid the groundwork and kind of invented this style. So I, I do really want to check out more of his stuff. Um, all right. Well, I believe that'll wrap up this episode of Cinematary. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash cinematary, on Twitter at handle at cinematary, and on Letterbox at letterbox.com slash cinematary, where we post all the movies that we talked about in this episode. Um, next week, we will be continuing our Young Critics Watch Old Movie series with 1967's The Producers, which is very different from this week's movie. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I think I'm, I'm I personally I'm very excited to to get to watch that one and sing along. We're just uh, this is this is just yeah. a long con. There, uh, there's a few. Paola scheme to get you to see Dunkirk 
we're on Chris Nolan's payroll, so we're only doing things related to World War II. Um, yeah, exactly. Exactly. We're on Chris Nolan's pay, payroll. Andrew's getting paid by Guillermo del Toro. It's just the whole, you know, we're making bank here at Cinematary. Um, There's a couple. We've sold out. Uh, yeah, Andrew mentioned before, check out his review of The Little Hours on the website. Also, uh, if you haven't yet, please go to Cinematary.com and go to our store. Grab a T-shirt, uh, you know, laptop sticker, bumper sticker, keychain, what have you. I got my T-shirt last week, and it isn't very, it's super comfortable and nice, so you should definitely check it out. They are very cozy. Yeah. I recommend they're, wearing Yeah, they're those. really nice T-shirts. Also, also, I would like to say before we go, um, Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets in theaters Friday, July 21st. <laughs> we need our money. All right, guys. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.